Good morning, King's Cross family. Today, we're jumping back into a series we started back in August uh, through the book of 1 Peter. We started this series back then, uh, and then we took a break for Christmas, um, and I'm excited that we're getting back into it. As a, a quick reminder... The author of this book, Peter, uh, is a seasoned pastor, and he's writing to Christians going through ultimately a really tough time. The letter simply recognizes that being a Christian is hard. And like just right off the bat, quick minute here, can we just all confess that uh, living in 2021, much less being a Christian, is hard? Like we have... uh, we just have distress both politically, social, economically, relationally with the weird thing about the pandemic and social distancing. And um, there's just a lot of ambient anxiety, of stress, of uncertainty that plagues our lives. And Peter is writing to these Christians and encouraging them and in turn encouraging us to remember the hope we have and our identity in Christ. God wants us to see this letter and be infused with uh, hope. He wants to infuse a restless people with hope. That's why we're calling the series Resilient Hope in a Restless World. Now, as we were reading through that text, you may have realized that there's this Right in the middle of it, there's this invitation to the good life. Uh, in, in chapter 3, verse 10, it says, Whoever desires to love life and see good days. Well, I mean, like, duh, that's all of us, right? Like, who doesn't want to desire a good life? We should all raise our hands and be like, yeah, 100% love life and see good days. I'm in. And before we get into the text, I just want to say that this is not a promise from God but a truism. You've probably heard Chris say that before. All through the Psalms and in Proverbs and here in 1 Peter, there are these truisms. They're not promises, not guarantees. If anybody ever preaches a guarantee like you come to Jesus and your marriage will be perfect and you will experience material wealth and you will be that breakout entrepreneur, like that's the point of following Jesus. Man, they are distorting the scripture and disrupting you from seeing something even more beautiful and true, which is the gospel. Ultimately, this truum is saying like this is mostly true. It's no different than saying uh, success breeds success. Is that true? Yeah. Is it guaranteed? Certainly not. Or uh, a breakfast burrito a day keeps the doctor away. Is that true? Yeah. Is that guaranteed? I hope so, because if not, I'm headed for disaster. Um, Let's go ahead and jump in uh, to to see these truisms and and what we ought to do, how we ought to orientate our lives or uh, uh, create dispositions for our heart, feelings for our heart to gravitate us towards loving life and uh, seeing good days. So verse eight, finally, all of you, Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now, I count at least five dispositions there or feelings, and we're going to actually go through them in reverse order. We're going to start with the last one and move forward because I think what you're going to see is that they all build upon each other. So 
So the last first one uh, is a humble mind. This means to be authentically lowly, recognizing that you are utterly dependent on God for all. The word here that, that Peter's using is meant to give us this feeling of being fragile or vulnerable. And <laughs> let's be real, like you're probably thinking to yourself, well, wait a minute, you, you just talked about living a good life and filled with love. Like being fragile and vulnerable sounds scary, sounds intimidating, sounds like I'm going to get hurt. And uh, yeah, being fragile and vulnerable is scary. It is intimidating. It does sound like weakness. Um, but guess what? You're weak. We're all weak. One of the most important aspects of us better understanding who God is and his promises for us is our ability to simply confess, Lord, I am weak. I am vulnerable. Like we are all far more fragile than we care to admit. And what's interesting about this is it's, he's not saying become weak. He's saying admit your weakness. Um, and, and that's important because we are weak. All we have to do is simply confess that that is true. Look at what Paul says. He does this all the time. In 2 Corinthians to, to the Corinthian church, he puts it like this. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness. Like what? <laughs> so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insult, hardship, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am made strong. Paul's like, dude, like here's my Achilles heel. Like I am worthless without Christ. I cannot do anything without him. I am weak and here it is. I'm so willing and able and ready to confess my weakness because when I do, the Lord will strengthen me. In our weakness, ultimately what we discover, admitting our weakness helps us better understand and discover God's strength. The second thing here it talks about is a kind heart, kind-heartedness. And uh, the, the original Hebrew word is this really weird, beautiful, kind of funny translation. What it means, kind-heartedness, what it means is to be big-bellied. And the reason why it says that is because uh, the Greeks, or I'm sorry, the Hebrews at this time, when First Peter was written, they believed that their heart was in their belly. I don't mean like the heart that's beating in your chest that's moving blood through your body. I mean like the heart of a person, who you were. Like we often say like my heart and we don't actually mean our physical heart. What we mean is like the heart of who we are. Well, they thought their heart was in their belly. And so for him to say kind heartedness, he, big bellied, he means just a big heart. What he means is kind through and through. Not being a hypocrite, not being kind on the outside, but being kind on, on the inside too. Because kindness, kindness can actually be a form of self-ambition. Like culturally, we're expected to be kind in certain times, kind to our boss, 
you know, kind to coworkers, kind to strangers so that we can, we can get further in life. But that's a self-ambitious kindness. And if you look within, that kindness doesn't, doesn't dig deep into our hearts. And so he's saying like the kindness that, that is penetrating, that's down into your soul, into the heart of a person. It also is talking about being, um, uh, being, being, have, wearing your heart on your sleeve, just being a soft person, not a hardened, like you can't hurt me kind of a person. That's, that is not the kind of person that, that first Peter is talking about here. The kind of person who lives a life full of love in good days is tender hearted through and through. Then he goes on to brotherly love. And if you're a member of our church and you've been here long enough, you know you've heard us talk over and over again about being a church family, that God calls us into a family of believers. And that is true, yes and amen, through and through. But here's the thing. Brotherly love actually takes that a step further. You see, having family, like, well, brotherly love is like having your inner circle, your fab five, right? Like, because if you think about it, a family, you can not like your family. You, you know, you can have distant relatives that you're just not interested in. Uh, I think about like uh, um, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation where like the in-laws come, the uncle comes, and like the inner family, the mom and the dad and the kids, they can't stand them. They're dying for the day that they leave, right? That is not the kind of family relationship that the Lord wants us to have with each other. He wants to have a brotherly and a sisterly love. In the same way that like, I want my kids to, to be able to turn to each other throughout their entire lives, whether they're kids, teenagers, or adults, my hope and prayer, we're trying to raise the kids so that they will turn to each other as a source of celebration, advice, counsel, comfort. They're going to do life with each other all the way to the end, and our hope is that they would, they would have a bond um, that is closer than than really anything else that they have in their lives, because God willing, like their relationship with each other will outlast outlast our relationship with them. And in that same sense, our Father in heaven wants us to have a brotherly and a sisterly love for one another, a deep and meaningful relationship. In that takes intentionality and sacrifice. To some of us, it might seem a bit overwhelming. But this is the life that the Lord has called us to. And on the other end of it, he says, is a life filled with love and good days. It's worth it. Next is, is being sympathetic or sympathy, which is ultimately... Uh, I think the best way of explaining it is feeling what others feel, bearing the burdens of one another, either rejoicing when another person is rejoicing or um, being sorrowful when another is feeling sorrowful. It's bearing each other's burdens both emotionally, physically, and financially. You know, my, um, my wife is really good at this. I mean, some of you know, like if you if you just received bad news or um, you're going through a tough time, um, my wife often, with no words, will just walk right on up to you, and just give you a hug, and she'll cry with you. And and even though she doesn't know directly what you're experiencing, 
what you're going through, you get the sense that she's bearing your burden, that she's feeling something that you're feeling. Um, that, that's what the Lord is calling us to for one another, that we would both be sympathetic emotionally, physically, financially. The next one would be unity of mind. Um, and this, this means a, a, a harmonious mindset or uh, having a common mind towards the things of God. Now, this does not mean that we will have the same tastes, interests, or habits. It doesn't even mean that we are going to have the same convictions about certain things. There is plenty of room in the scriptures for diversity. Having one mind does not mean that we are going to agree on every little detail, right? Um, what it means is that we will have unity over God's plan for redemption. We will celebrate God's work of reconciliation in our lives as individuals and uh, desire for the redeeming kingdom of our king to come on earth as it is in heaven. And I mean, look, you're not going to agree with everybody all the time. This is not about just always agreeing with one another. As a matter of fact, the, the uh, apostles this, themselves did not agree on really important matters that were really meaningful and dear to them. Just look at Barnabas and Paul in the New Testament. So we should expect to disagree with one another. After all, God says that we see him through a dimly lit reflection. So none of us are seeing clearly all of it. And, and, and ultimately, we need to work together, hear one another out so that we better understand the Lord and the things of this world. So if we can't always agree with one another, then how are we supposed to be of one mind? Look what Paul says to the church in Philippians, in Philippi, to the Philippians. The Phil anyway, if there is any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Here it is. Let nothing be done from self-ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest in others, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. Man, this is radical and confessionally difficult that we ought to lay aside Ultimately, Peter and Paul and, and Jesus are calling us to lay aside what we have a right to hold on to. And, and what this looks like, having unity of mind, is voluntarily dying for the sake of love. Right? First uh, uh, Peter chapter 3 lays out submission for the employee to the employer. Submission from husband, or from wives to husbands and husbands to the church. And now Peter here in our verses is calling every single one of us. It starts out by saying, finally, all of you. He's ultimately saying, all of you humbly submit, have submissive hearts towards one another. 
Look at how Paul finishes his, his uh, encouragement to the Philippians. Have this a mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friends, family, we don't have to agree with each other. We don't have to see eye to eye. We don't have to vote the same way, raise our kids the same way, school them the same way. We don't have to be charitable the same way. We don't have to have the same political opinions. We don't have to wash the dishes the same way. We don't have to fold laundry the same way. To have unity of mind, to experience a life filled with love and good days, what we need is humility. What we need to do is love others more than ourselves. And we need to be willing to humbly submit. This is what a life of love and good days looks like. And it is hard. It is hard when you are absolutely certain that you got it right, that they just don't get it. That if they just had the information, had the insight, had the experience, had the knowledge that you have, they would see things more clearly. They would see it your way. And confessionally, like, well, we'll get there. We'll get there. What I want you to see here is... uh, all of this is happening in reverse order for a reason because it's building upon each other, right? So we just went backwards to forwards. Now let's go forward to backwards. It says, or think about it like this, having a unity of mind takes sympathy and sympathy requires brotherly love and brotherly love is motivated by a kind heart and a kind heart along with everything else starts with humility. You want to live a life full of love and good days There are ultimately no external circumstances that will bring that to you. No amount of comfort, success, experience, possession can bring you a life filled with love and good days. It happens in your heart. It happens with your disposition. Timothy Keller says it like this, the Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. It undermines both swaggering and sniveling. He says, I cannot feel superior to anyone and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. I do not think of myself more or less. I'm sorry. I do not think more of myself or less of myself. Instead, I think of myself less. If you, uh, if you took an honest assessment of yourself, I think what you'll find is that you and I are simply not capable of feeling this way all the time. And, and these are these dispositions are feelings. It's a heart posture. 
And, you know, that the psychologist would tell you that you can never demand for somebody to feel a certain way. Like you just, you, you can tell someone to do something, but you can't tell someone to feel something. And if that's true, then you might be thinking, okay, well then it's impossible for me to live a life of love and good days because it's impossible for me to always feel sympathetic and brotherly love and tenderhearted and humble. I'm done for. I'm in. There's no chance. And I can think there's at least two things that are making it incredibly difficult. No, there are at least two things that are making it impossible for us to have these dispositions. The first is our culture. Our culture almost demands dogmatism from us. It's There's this... There's, echo chambers all around us that are not interested in us being humble. It's almost like the louder, stronger stance you take on something, the more people will gravitate towards your position, the more people that will, the more that people will respect and honor you for your wisdom uh, or for your confidence. It's almost as if culture uh, encourages, demands and even rewards us to be the opposite of those things. Because if you sound like this in our day and age, then you sound like a wishy-washy compromiser. And like, let's be real. We are like flies to flicker, moth to a flame. What's that saying? We are like moth to a flame when it comes to a strong argument to uh, reinforce our own positions. We all have this tendency to gravitate towards some stream of thought that will empower or embolden us. And what Peter is saying is that the more we tune in, the more we follow, the more we repeat the argument, the more we dig our heels into our stubbornized positions, the more we move away from a life filled with love and good days. And the second thing that's stopping us from experiencing love and good days is, uh, quite frankly, the condition of our hearts. The reason why we gravitate like moth to flame is because we don't like being vulnerable, dependent. John Piper points out that all of 1 Peter is ultimately about breaking the backs of our rebellion. And, and we have inherited this rebellious, independent heart from Adam. Look at what First Peter says, chapter 1. We were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. You see, we are born prideful, retaliators. If I'm taking an honest assessment of myself, uh, then it's impossible to live this way. And which then makes us ask the question, can God demand of me something that I am not capable of doing? Can God demand of you something that you're not capable of doing? And the answer to that question is, yeah, he can. He is the God who commanded a stuttering nomad, Moses, to be one of the greatest prophets he commanded a shepherd boy to defeat a giant with a sling, and he commanded the dead man, Lazarus, to raise from the grave. See, the good news is that God demands this from you, but also God gives you the means to change you into the kind of person that can live this way. He means to make you more and more like Jesus, who lived this way perfectly. 
And the entire letter of First Peter, the entire thing is building on this idea of God making a new kind of person, a new kind of you. Not one who returns evil for evil, but one who loves earnestly. And the power to, to change comes from nothing less than God making you and I a new person. Look at First Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Here it is. Since you've been born again. Jesus is inviting us into a new way of living and through his work in us, living this way is possible. What was once not possible is now possible. So how do we go on um, continuing our work and pursuing this kind of life? Uh, being available for God to do a work in our lives, to recondition the dispositions and feelings of our hearts towards one another. Well, through the passage, uh, I see through the three R's. I get excited whenever I find something like this because I'm normally not good at it. The three R's is repent and resolve. That's one. Sneaking the next one in there. Uh, request and reflect. This is how we're going to end our sermon. So repent. Look at verse 11 again. Let him turn away from evil. The first thing that we need to do is live lives of daily repentance. And repentance simply means turning from something and turning towards someone else, something else, turning from sin and pride and power and privilege and turning towards the goodness and the promises of God. Return, repenting is turning from thinking and living your way, the way that you inherited from your forefathers, and thinking and living in a way uh, in which reflects the inheritance that you now have in God and Jesus Christ. And the second thing is to resolve yourself. Look at verse 10. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Resolve yourself to break the patterns of our present age. Man, if you've been caught up in um, streams of news, thinking, living, following, uh, uh, scrolling that is not conducive for life filled with love and good days, unplug, turn it off, unfollow, stop reading. Like, look, if your way of going about your relationships with family and friends and coworkers, people online is full of self-ambition and anger and frustration looking out for yourself first, seeing your way primarily. If you're not going about uh, disagreements with a tender, gracious, sympathetic heart, confess that you're in need of a heart renovation and resolve yourself to change, to rearrange your liturgies, your, your rhythms of life. Good what verse 9 says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. What does it mean to bless? 
it means so much more than not retaliating, right? Like if you're able to hold your tongue, if you're able to hold back your anger and frustration online or your anger and frustration with the person you live with, but in your heart, you're still angry and mad and you just want them to see it your way, that's not blessing, right? That's, that's hypocrisy. On the outside, you're soft and kind-hearted, but on the inside, you're mad. You're bitter and angry. What blessing means is truly to will good in their life. Not will for them to see it your way, to come to your side, but to will the best for that person, the person that just gets under your skin. You'd rather good come to that person than bad. Resolve yourself to break the patterns of our present age. And and then third is to request or to pray. Look at verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open. God's ears are open to the prayer. Man, Christians, all of you, pray to God. Every single one of you listening now, my, my encouragement to you is to pray to the Lord and ask him to renovate your heart. We are no longer children of an age of division and pride and hatred. We are inheritors of God's kingdom. And with that inheritance comes a new father. Lift your prayer up to that father in heaven and ask him to change you. He's in the business of doing it. The last R, and here's how we're going to close it out, is to reflect. Verse 9, to this you were called. Friends, look to Jesus on that cross. Look and see Jesus who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Rather, he humbled himself. He brought himself down to lift you up. He emptied himself and was obedient to even death on the cross. I can't think of anything more humbling, more disarming, disarming, than recognizing our need for salvation and seeing Jesus, God himself, offer it up. Because here's the thing, Jesus is not only our example to live this way, he's our substitution for when we fall short. And it's in the power of recognizing his substitution, his gift to us, that we are enabled to live a new life of humility Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, and we're going to pray after this. He says, a friend was asking me the other day, how can I be humble? He felt there was pride in him, and he wanted to know how to get rid of it. He seemed to think that I had some patent remedy and could tell him, do this, that, and the other, and you will be humble. So I said, this is Martin Lloyd-Jones, I have no method or technique I can't tell you to get down on your knees and believe in prayer because I know you will soon be proud of that. There's only one way to be humble, and that is to look into the face of Jesus Christ. You cannot be anything else when you see him. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, 
please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.